0: For European Philosophy. My name is Christina Muslok. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and the Fellow here in the Philosophy Department. And today's lecture is part of the Forum's uh, series called Philosophy at LSE. So the idea is that basically philosophers working at the LSE present a part of their work that they think will be um, of broad interest to the general public. And it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce my colleague Andrew Khoury, who is also a Fellow here in the Philosophy Department. Um, he received his PhD from the Arizona State University in 2011, and his main research interests are in moral philosophy and metaphysics, um, and tonight he's going to talk to us about two different types of responsibility, uh, and to and explain to us why he thinks that distinguishing these different types of responsibility is important for our understanding of Um, various notions such as apology, forgiveness and punishment but also um, relevant to the question as to whether moral responsibility is compatible with determinism. Um, So I'm very much looking forward to this lecture and without further ado I'll just hand over to Andrew. He'll be speaking for about 45 to 50 minutes so we'll have plenty of time for discussion afterwards.
1: Thanks. Thanks And so as Christina said, my talk is called uh, Synchronic and Diachronic Responsibility. It's based on a paper which is coming out um, in the journal Philosophical Studies, um, and it's available online if you like at uh, philpapers.org. So the plan for today, um, so I'm going to distinguish between two forms of responsibilities. I'm going to draw a distinction. Remote's kind of a little funny. I'm going to draw a distinction, then I'm going to try and explain what kind of philosophical work the distinction can do. And so, the first thing to say is that I want to try and give you, kind of narrow down, the target concept of responsibility that I'm going to be focused on. So, there's many different senses of responsibility. I want to emphasize I'm focused on moral responsibility. So, this, this should be distinguished from um, your causal responsibility, the sense of responsibility, um, referred to in the utterance. Carbon emissions are responsible for warming. I also want to distinguish this from um, mere legal responsibility, the kind of responsibility referred to in the phrase. He was found responsible for misconduct. And so so I'm focused on moral responsibility, which I take to be the extent to which an agent is blameworthy or praiseworthy for some bit of behavior. And I take this to be a continuum, really, with blameworthiness and praiseworthiness as poles. And so, on this kind of conception, blameworthiness is really a form or a mode of responsibility, and similarly, for praiseworthiness. And so I think what I have to say will apply both to blameworthiness and to praiseworthiness. So I'm going to draw a distinction then between two forms of responsibility in that sense. Then I'm going to try and explain um, the way in which this distinction is relevant to the concepts of apology Forgiveness and punishment. I'll say a bit about that. And then I'll try and tie this into the debate over whether moral responsibility is compatible or incompatible with causal determinism. And in a sense, this is really just a question of um, whether free will is compatible with determinism, or even kind of more broadly speaking, a naturalistic understanding of the universe. Okay. So here's here's the distinction. Here's it's just is what I take it to be. So, synchronic responsibility is the extent to which some agent S is responsible at time t1 for some act X that occurs at t1. Diachronic responsibility is extent to which some agent S is responsible at some later time t2 for some act X that occurs at t1. Clear? So, so here's the here's the basic idea, right? So. Synchronic responsibility concerns the extent to which one's blameworthy or praiseworthy for an action at the time the action occurs. And diachronic responsibility kind of concerns the transfer of responsibility through time to some later time. So, diachronic responsibility concerns the extent to which we are blameworthy or praiseworthy for something that happened in the past. Right? The extent to which we're blameworthy now for something that happened, say, a year ago. So, that's what the distinction is between uh, synchronic and diachronic responsibility. So here's an example that hopefully will kind of make this idea intuitive, and I I hope it will kind of suggest that this is a real phenomenon of our kind of moral lives that I'm describing, rather than just kind of stipulating something um, into existence. Okay. So Jane, here's an example of Jane and the insult. So in scenario A, Jane cruelly insults her brother. I mean, like, a mean, mean insult, right? Suppose that, um, kind of from a set of malicious motivations and values and desires, she makes fun of the size of her brother's ears in front of all of his friends. And he is horrified. He's really embarrassed. I mean, this is, like, a really mean thing for her to have done. Right? Suppose that she doesn't really have any kind of excusing conditions there, right? She just did this because she was mean. Mean to sister. Now suppose, so that happens at time T1. Right? I'm just stipulating, that's the time at which it occurs. Just call that T1. Right? So now imagine time goes by. And as time goes by, Jane begins to feel really bad about what she's done. So much so that she begins to undergo kind of a process of self-improvement. She resolves to kind of change her personality a little bit. She kind of cultivates compassion and sympathy and these sorts of things. And so as time goes by... You know, after one year later, she's no longer disposed to insult her brother whatsoever. Indeed, issuing that kind of insult is now not even a live option for her. It's not even something she can kind of consider doing, it's not a kind of motivational live option for her. And so after one year, she offers her brother a really sincere and heartfelt apology. She says, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not disposed to do this thing anymore. I renounce that kind of behavior. I'm really sorry for what I've done. Okay, so that's scenario A. Now compare that to scenario B. So again, at time T1, Jane cruelly insults her brother. Imagine it's the same story as the first scenario. But now in scenario B, time goes by, and at time T2, one year later, she doesn't apologize, because she's not sorry. She's just as disposed to issue that kind of insult at time T2 in scenario B. So she doesn't apologize. Because she's not sorry. Okay, so that's so the that's example. Now here's my claim. There's no difference in these two scenarios with respect to Jane's blameworthiness for the insult at time t1. Right, there's no difference in her blameworthiness for the insult at the time of the insult itself. But there is a difference in her blameworthiness for the insult at time t, too. right? Her blameworthiness, her blameworthiness for the insult at that later time is less in scenario A than it is in scenario B in light of the kind of changes that she's undergone. Right? She's no longer disposed to make insults of that kind. She's a much more decent, caring, compassionate person at this later time. And so I want to suggest, look, that mitigates her blameworthiness for the insult at that later time. So there's no difference in Jane's blameworthiness for the insult at T1 across these two scenarios, which is to say there's no difference in synchronic responsibility across the two scenarios. But there is a difference, I'm claiming, in her responsibility at time T2 across the scenarios, which is to say there's a difference in diachronic blameworthiness across these two scenarios. Her diachronic blameworthiness is less in scenario A than it is. In scenario B. So that's the distinction, and this is um, what I hope gives you some kind of evidence that this is a real phenomenon out in the world. So to my knowledge, this distinction has not been explicitly drawn by anyone before, and I think part of the reason for that is that most theorists, I think, implicitly assume that the condition or the relation that grounds transfer of responsibility through time is just personal identity. Right, personal identity is a relation, so personal identity is the relation that makes one person the same person over time, right, so the reason that I'm the same person now that I was at two years old is because the relation of personal identity holds between myself at two and myself at thirty-one. And personal identity is a non-scalar relation, it either holds or it doesn't. And so I think there's some issues, and I think that's possibly why people have not kind of been paying attention to this distinction. So most theorists, I think, they just assume that diachronic responsibility is a straightforward matter of personal identity. If you're the same person as the author of the act, then that's both necessary and sufficient for responsibility to freely transfer through time. But I think that's actually a mistake. I think that this relation of personal identity is in fact neither necessary nor sufficient for responsibility to freely transfer through time. And so I'll give you two examples in order to try and establish this claim. Right? I'll try and give you an example in which um, personal identity does not hold, but I'll claim responsibility does transfer through time. And similarly, I'll try and give you an example in which Personal identity does hold between two periods of time, but in which responsibility does not transfer seamlessly. Okay.
2: So, some of you, so this is kind of a sci
1: fi type example. Some people might object to it on that kind of ground. I think that it's okay if this is kind of not, um, doesn't seem scientifically feasible, so long as it's kind of conceptually possible. I think that's the only thing that I need in order to establish this kind of claim. So some of you may have heard about these kinds of fission cases, those of you who are familiar with the personal identity literature. right? So imagine that surgeons transplant, imagine that you get in a car accident or something along these lines, and your body is um, horribly mangled. But there's this new kind of neurosurgery technique according to which surgeons can remove your brain and put it into an empty-headed body. Right, so suppose that happens, and the question is, do you survive? Does this new entity who has your brain but another person's body, is that you? Or is this someone else who just has a new brain? And I think it's, it's intuitive for a lot of people that um, you would survive. That this would amount to kind of a body transplant as opposed to a brain transplant. Right, but now suppose that, again, you get in a kind of car accident, and your body is mangled in a certain kind of way, insurgents remove your brain, by this time, they split it. They cut the connections between the two hemispheres, and just stipulate an example that these two hemispheres of your brain are functional duplicates of each other. Then they're placed into two resulting bodies, empty-headed bodies. So the resulting people will share your current psychology, right? They'll share all your beliefs, all all your desires, all your memories all your values, and they'll both claim to be you, right, in virtue of sharing this psychology. Now the question is, do you survive? Do you survive this operation? This is a really hard question that raises a lot of tough issues about the nature of personal identity, right? One option is that um, you survive as one of the two resulting beings. But it seems that whether you're one or the other, is just going to be completely arbitrary. Neither of the resulting um, persons has any greater claim on being you than the other. Right? Another option is to say you don't survive. That can seem a little unpalatable because right, if, it was just, if there was just one resulting person, then we'd be inclined to say that you would survive. So how could a double success be a failure? Right? This is death. This idea that you um, get death by competition. But the crucial part for our purposes here is that it's impossible that you're personally identical with both of the resulting beings. Because personal identity is a transitive relation. So if you're identical with both the resulting beings, then both the resulting beings have to be identical with each other. Because personal identity is a transitive relation. But that would be impossible because these two resulting people occupy different spaces at a single given time identity is a one-one relation rather than one-many. Okay. So that's that's just what fission is, right? So some of this stuff might be a little confusing, that's okay for the present purposes. Right? but so fission involves removing one person's brain, splitting it, putting it into two resulting bodies. Psychology is continuous across this operation. Right? So now consider this example. Jack brutally murders Charles, and then he voluntarily undergoes fission in order to confuse the police. All right, so imagine this happens, right? Jack commits some bad crime, and then he's like, I'm going to really throw the police off my case, and he goes to this kind of uh, black market fission surgery operation, undergoes fission. There's two resulting people. Both of them have memories of murdering Charles. Right? Both of them celebrate, they carry out Jack's pre-fission intention to celebrate his getting away with it after after they undergo fission. So they have all these things. They have the same values, they have the same memories, they have the same beliefs as Jack prior to undergoing fission. So now the question is, are the resulting people blameworthy for the murder? And I think the answer is, yeah, they are. And I think this becomes more plausible when we kind of vividly imagine the phenomenology of the resulting people, right? They're both going to be psychologically continuous with Jack. They have the same intentions, the same beliefs, the same desires. And I mean, think of, their, think of what it would feel like from that perspective. They kind of feel like, yeah, I got away with it. This is great. Right? Assuming they don't get caught. But I don't think that that's kind of a mitigating or exculpating consideration, right? It's not as if just the fact that they split into two different people. That doesn't seem to me to get them off the hook. At all, right? It seems like blameworthiness does transfer through, through this case. Right? And so this is nicely kind of put forward by David Wiggins. He says, a malefactor could, could hardly evade responsibility by contriving his own vision. Right? Think, about, think about whether this would be a good way to get off the hook for the bad things that you do, by making two of you. And that would seem to aggravate things rather than to make them better. So here's kind of the upshot here. So Jack can't be identical with both of the fission products. But, arguably, both fission products are responsible, are blameworthy, for the murder of Charles. So here we have a case with responsibility without personal identity, arguably. And so personal identity is not necessary for responsibility to freely transfer through time. Which is to say, personal identity is not necessary for diachronic responsibility to be equal to synchronic responsibility for the same app. Now some of this stuff depends on, some Some people might kind of object to this vision case, and they might, I don't know if there's any of you in the audience who are inclined to do this, but they might appeal to what's called four-dimensionalism, in order to kind of escape this for For those people, if there are any of you here, I just kind of want to say, bracket off your concerns, maybe we talk about them during the discussion, but For my purposes, really, the crucial claim is that personal identity is not sufficient for um, responsibility to freely transfer through time. So how do we establish that kind of claim? Well, I think we already have. I think we already have established the idea that personal identity is not enough for one's diachronic responsibility to be equal to one's synchronic responsibility. I think that's shown by this case of Jane and the insult. Right, there's no funny stuff involving personal identity in that example. Right? that's just a normal case of someone insulting her brother, then changing the in kind of certain ways, right, becoming a better person. I don't. I think these are in no way fanciful. Right, so in scenario A, Jane is identical at T one. Sorry, Jane at T one is identical, personally identical with Jane at T two. So personal identity holds, but it's not enough for responsibility to freely transfer. Indeed, I've argued that in Scenario A, her blameworthiness for the insult at time T2 is mitigated in Scenario A, in virtue of the kinds of changes that she's made, in virtue of the fact that she's no longer disposed to um, insult her brother again, that kind of way. So the fact that personal identity holds in that case isn't enough, for responsibility to freely transfer through time, this establishes that personal identity is insufficient for one's diachronic responsibility to equal one's synchronic responsibility. Personal identity is not, by itself, sufficient for that to happen. Personal identity is not sufficient for responsibility to freely transfer through time which is to say it's insufficient for one's diachronic responsibility to be equal to one's economic responsibility. Okay. So, so what, then, are the conditions of diachronic responsibility? Right, so here we have some intuitive data. Right? We've considered a couple cases. case of Jane and the insult, and the case of Jack and Fission. So we have our intuitive reactions to these kinds of cases, right? The intuitive reactions... Maybe you don't share these, but again, we can discuss this during a Q&A session. So the intuitive data is that Jane's blameworthiness is mitigated in scenario A, where she undergoes that program of self-improvement. And the other intuition but I hope you share is that when Jack undergoes fission, and there's two resulting fission products, both of them are responsible or blameworthy for the murder that occurred before the fission. So what are, what are our intuitions tracking, if not personal identity, in these cases? And so I think the answer is that, well, they're tracking something about the agent's psychology, something about the content of the agent's psychology, something about their beliefs, their desires, their values, their motivations, and the way in which these certain psychological states persist or don't through time. So and here's a little preview. So I think that this notion of psychological connectedness is exactly what grounds the conditions of diachronic responsibility. So what is this notion of psychological connectedness? Well, perhaps not entirely illuminating. We psychological connectedness concerns the holding of direct psychological connections across time. Well, what are these psychological connections then? Well, here's here's kind of an example. So memory and experience, take this to be an experience of some event, and a memory of some event. So these are two kind of psychological um, states. And they can be directly connected. Here's what happens when they're directly connected. When the memory is a memory of this very experience, thereby they share a certain kind of psychological content, and when there's a causal relation between them, of the right sort when the experience itself caused the memory. Right, so right now I have a memory of having a dinosaur birthday party when I was five years old. So I have a memory of this experience. This memory is directly connected to the psychological experience itself in virtue of the fact that they share content. My memory is of the same sort of thing that the experience was of. And the experience itself caused the memory. Are, so they're psychologically connected. Right, but that's just one example of psychological connectedness, and there's many other forms that psychological connectedness can take. So Derek Parfit puts it like this, one such connection is that which holds between an intention and the later act in which this intention is carried out. Other such direct connections are those which hold when a belief or a desire or any other psychological feature continues you have. So psychological connectedness is really just an account of um, the persistence conditions for certain psychological features. And as I've said, two psychological states are connected to the degree that they're similar and causally related. Causally related in the right kind of way. And so those of you who if there are any out there who are familiar with the literature on personal identity, may have heard of this distinction between psychological connectedness and psychological continuity. So psychological continuity is, as people say, it's the ancestral relation of psychological connectedness. Here's what this amounts to. Psychological continuity is made up of overlapping chains of psychological connectedness. So, it's true of me, at age 31 right now, that I'm psychologically continuous with myself at 2 years old. The reason that I'm psychologically continuous with myself at 2 years old is because there's overlapping chains of psychological connectedness between myself at 2 and myself currently. Right? Myself at 3 remembers experiences of myself at 2, myself at 4 remembers experiences of myself at 3, Myself at five remembers experiences of myself at four, and so on. There's overlapping chains, but I actually, as a matter of fact, I don't right now remember any experiences of myself at two. And so to that extent, I'm not psychologically connected to myself at two, though I am psychologically continuous with myself at two. And so the claim that I want to emphasize here is that I think that diachronic responsibility is completely a matter of psychological connectedness, and not a matter of psychological continuity. Okay. <clears throat> so here's kind of, in a more precise way, here's um, kind of what I think about this. So if some agent, S, is blameworthy for some act x to degree d at time t1, then when there is maximal psychological connectedness between Time T1, some later time T2, then the agent is blameworthy for X to degree D at time T2. Okay, so again, there's a lot of variables in there. So here's just what this means. In cases in which there's maximal psychological connectedness of the right sort between two times, then blameworthiness freely transfers through time. Similarly for praiseworthiness. Responsibility freely transfers through time when there's maximal degree of this psychological connectedness. Now, I also want to emphasize that for diachronic responsibility, it's not, I think, a matter of the degree to which one is psychologically connected to all of one's psychological features, but rather a very specific subset of those psychological features. So as I say up here, What matters is not global psychological connectedness, but local psychological connectedness. So here's an example. Suppose that Jack um, insults Jill at time T1. Suppose the reason he does so is because he's a self-absorbed narcissist at that time. Suppose also that he's also um, kind of an ardent tennis player, really likes to play tennis. Now, time goes by at time T2, He's still a self absorbed narcissist, still has all the motivations that led him to action, but he no longer likes tennis at all. So, given that at time T1, he liked tennis, and at time T2, he doesn't like tennis anymore, there are certain psychological disconnections, right? Because those desires, the desire to play tennis, doesn't persist across that time. But I ask you to reflect do you think that when people change kind of their sports, what sports they like to play? I mean, this doesn't seem to get him off the hook at all for insulting Jill. That was due to his being a self-absorbed narcissist. Right? Insofar as he's still a self-absorbed narcissist in exactly the same way, then it seems that he's just as blameworthy for the insult at that later time as he was at that earlier time. So here's kind of what that means in a little bit more abstract terms. So whenever we act... Right, we're, we're people that do things, we do actions. Whenever we act, we do them from some, I want to say, psychological structure. Some set of motivations, of values, of beliefs. Whenever we act, we act from a certain set of psychological elements. Diachronic responsibility, I'm arguing, is a matter of the extent to which one is psychologically connected at the later time to those psychological elements that issued in the action originally. These are the psychological connections that matter for diachronic responsibility. So if you do some action because of some certain set of psychological elements, you'll be responsible at some later time to the extent that you still have those same psychological elements that issued in the action. So again, I mean, some of this might seem a little bit abstract. I'm not sure how much it connects to reality. Um, I think it does connect to reality. I think that, I mean, descriptions of moral responsibility would be much more straightforward if synchronic responsibility always lined up. Sorry, if diachronic responsibility kind of always lined up with synchronic responsibility. But I think that cases in which DR, diachronic responsibility, comes apart from SR, synchronic responsibility. I think they're common, but I also think they're troubling. I think they elicit in us kind of conflict and tension. And I think that's nicely illustrated um, by my video going to play? I was hoping that would play. Fortunately, I have a backup. By um, certain characters, especially rehabilitated criminals. So, some of you may have seen the film The Shawshank Redemption*. So, in that movie, um, it's a great movie, I think you should see it if you haven't seen it, in that movie, um, there's a character named Red, who's played by Morgan Freeman, and he's incarcerated because he's a murderer. He committed a murder when he was a teenager. But the film takes place much later when he's an aging man. And he's served forty years of a life sentence, and he strikes us kind of as one of the most kind, caring, and decent characters in the film. But he's a murderer at the same time. I mean, how do we reconcile these different kinds of evaluations? And so, after forty years, he's up for yet another parole hearing, and the parole board member asks him if he feels that he's been rehabilitated. Here's what he says.
3: sit down L.S. Boyd Redding if I'll say you've served 40 years of a life sentence you feel you've been rehabilitated rehabilitated well now let me see you know I don't have any idea what that means Well, it means you're ready to rejoin society. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word. A politician's word, so that young fellas like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? Well, I you? There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here, because you think I should. I look back on the way I was then. A young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense to him, tell him the way things are, but I can't. That kid's long gone, and this old man is all that's left. You
4: turn out the volume.
3: Yeah. I got to live with that. Rehabilitated. It's just a bullshit word. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop waiting. Wasting my time because I tell you the truth, I don't give a shit.
1: And his parole is approved. So, so what's going on with red in that kind of case? So, I mean, so I think that these cases are common, and I think they elicit in us conflict and tension. It's easy, right? From so we think about characters like red, right? People who commit crimes, but then undergo drastic kind of changes in who they are, and I mean, we can focus on different aspects of the agent, right? We can focus on the person who did the crime. From that perspective, right, their synchronic blameworthiness may be very quite high. And from that perspective, it's hard to forgive, it's hard to forget, and it's easy to punish, and it's easy to blame. But then at the same time, we can focus on the person before us now. This person may be very little resemblance to the person who committed their original crime. From this perspective, it's easier to forgive, and it's easier to kind of to move on. But the fact that things look so different from these kinds of, these different perspectives... It's just really difficult to reconcile. So one question that arises is whether people like Red should be forgiven for what they've done. And so I think it's plausible to think that whether someone should be forgiven for some past bad act um, is a matter of the degree to which and the way in which she's diachronically responsible for that past act. So to the extent that Red no longer is psychologically connected... To the certain psychological elements that led to the murder in the first place, then he's not diachronically responsible for the murder and hence ought to be forgiven for the murder. I think you can see this when you consider the notion, the phenomena really of apology as well. I mean, I think that, kind of think about what, if someone harms you in some kind of way, think about what would be the best kind of apology that you would want. And I think when we offer apologies, one of the things we're often doing is expressing or representing that we're no longer psychologically connected to the motivations and values and desires and beliefs that led to that bad action in the first place. Right. So to apologize is at least in part to kind of renounce the act it's to take a new kind of evaluative stance towards that thing. I think it's also often... Um, an expression that one's no longer disposed to do that sort of thing. Where these are expressions or representations, they might be false, right? It might not be a genuine apology. But I think that um, when one actually is the way one's representing oneself to be, which is to say, um, when to, to actually be sorry involves being relevantly disconnected from those psychological elements. And then finally, I think that this distinction between SR and DR, between synchronic responsibility and diachronic responsibility, is also relevant to the notion of punishment. right? So traditional kind of retributive, retributive uh, theories of punishment, attempt to justify punishment in virtue of the agent's synchronic responsibility. Right, the agent's... Um, The extent to which an agent should be punished is completely determined by the extent to which the agent is responsible for the crime at the time of the crime. So these kinds of theories, one of the advantages that they have is that they're able to preserve the presumed kind of backward-looking features of our punishment-related practices, and that they're essentially reactive. But one problem with these kinds of theories is that it's illustrated really by characters like Red, the rehabilitated criminal. It can seem cruel and pointless to continue to punish a completely rehabilitated criminal, even if the original crime was quite severe. So instead of the the retributivist approach, some people kind of favor a rehabilitative approach to punishment, in which the kind of point or purpose of punishment is to kind of encourage a certain kind of psychological reshaping um, of the agent. And so, this has an advantage that it's able to kind of escape the worries raised by characters like Red, but people object to it in virtue of the fact that it's kind of exclusively forward-looking, kind of consequentialist. Um, and so it's unable to kind of capture this idea that punishment is essentially a matter of desert. And furthermore, I mean, it allows for the possibility that the punishment itself could be much more severe than the crime kind of illustrated in for example, the film Clockwork Orange. And so I think that this distinction that I've drawn offers a novel kind of account of punishment, one that is essentially retributive, but in which the person's the extent to which a person should be punished is not determined by what they were like at the time of the crime, but what they're like now, which is to say is determined by their diachronic responsibility rather than their synchronic responsibility. And so I think that this kind of approach has some advantages and escapes some of the problems with the other kinds of approaches. So um, it's able to explain why it's pointless and kind of cruel to continue to punish a completely rehabilitated criminal, but it's still able to account for a punishment in terms of desert. So I think that it has some of these kinds of advantages. I mean, obviously I've just sketched a theory of punishment, extremely broad outline, so much more would need to be said to actually develop such a theory, but it suggests kind of an avenue along which this distinction has problems. Okay, so I've been talking a lot about moral responsibility, and for those of you who are familiar with some of these issues, you might be surprised that I haven't mentioned free will, or haven't mentioned the threat of causal determinism, so I'll get into that a little bit right now. So, I mean, going back 2,500 years... People argue about whether responsibility, moral responsibility, is compatible or incompatible with determinism. Determinism is this idea that everything that happens kind of happens necessarily, given some initial state of the universe, together with the laws of nature, so that there's only kind of one physically possible future. So it seems, I mean, one way to frame the issue is that it seems like it's an open question whether determinism is in fact true or false, currently. And people wonder what the implications would be for moral responsibility. So so there's two kinds of characters in this debate. There's the compatibilist and the incompatibilist. The compatibilist says, yes, we could still be morally responsible for what we do, even if determinism is true. The incompatibilist says, no, these two things are incompatible. If determinism is true, this rules out moral responsibility. And so kind of just to give you a little bit of a preview, I think that I like compatibilism, and I think that this distinction between synchronic and diachronic responsibility can be used as part of a strategy that the compatibilist can employ in responding to a certain kind of objection leveled by the incompatibilist. Right, so, I mean, for a lot of people, incompatibilism seems really natural. It seems like, well, if determinism is true, then we couldn't have done anything other than what we do. And so, yeah, that, how can we really be responsible for what we do in a determined world? So I'll give you... Here's a quick sketch of what's really been an extremely influential strand of compatibilism, that of Harry Frankfurt. And so Frankfurt says, look, even if determinism is true... And in a sense, this really goes back to Hume as well. But Frankfurt says, look, even if determinism is true we can still act on the basis of our desires, right? We can still do things because we want to do them, it's just that those desires are determined. But not only that, we can be completely happy about that state of affairs, right? We can be glad that we act on the desires that we do act on. So Frankfurt sketches a kind of theory of responsibility and really of free will, according to which you count as free and responsible just insofar as you exhibit the appropriate kind of structural relations amongst your desires. Specifically for him, as long as your second-order desires, your second-order volitions line up with your will, which are first-order desires. And so Frankfurt's view, I think, in my terminology, is a version of a quality-of-will account, really of synchronic responsibility. So according to these accounts, an agent is responsible... If and only if, and because she has the proper quality of will at the time of the action, what that amounts to, what this right quality of will is, gets filled in in different ways by different kinds of theorists. So, Frankfurt fills it out in one kind of way. Um, Gary Watson fills it out in a different kind of way. Nomi or Pauly fills it out in a different kind of way. But they all share, they're all committed ultimately. So there's been this very popular, very common objection leveled against these kinds of theories. And here's how the objection goes, essentially. So according to Frankfurt, you're responsible just insofar as you have the right structure amongst your desires, even if those are causally determined. But critics of these kinds of theories say, Look, imagine that a nefarious neurosurgeon, or a hypnotist, or some other kind of bad character instills in you certain kinds of desires, right? So, a mean neurosurgeon while you sleep tinkers with your brain, induces in you these desires, and indeed, induces a proper structural relations amongst those desires. Then suppose, on the basis of those desires, you go and kill your neighbor, and the intuition is thought, well, certainly, you're not responsible, even though you exhibit the right quality of will that Frankfurt thinks is sufficient responsibility. Alright, so here's here's a typical example. This comes from Al Neely at uh, Florida State University. So he has a case of brainwashed Beth. Right, so Beth is a really nice sweet, sweet person. She's decent, couldn't even imagine hurting a fly. But while she sleeps, a team of evil psychologists go in and manipulate her brain in a certain kind of way, and they give her a desire to stalk and kill her neighbor, George. And indeed, they give her the right kind of structural features amongst her, psychology amongst her desires, so she wakes up with this new desire to stalk and kill her neighbor, George. She's pleased with it, and she has the right structure amongst her desires. She identifies with this desire. And then she goes and kills her neighbor, George. And in Maley's case, then, immediately after, the manipulation itself is reversed. So the question is, is she responsible? So the supposed intuitive data, I mean, the intuition that Mealy is trying to um, bring out in you, when you kind of hear this case, is the intuition that, well, no, she's obviously not responsible for what she does as a result of this manipulation, even though she met all the conditions that Frankfurt could want for responsible agencies. Right, so proponents of the manipulation cases argue that it's obvious that Beth is not responsible for murdering. This is, this is so, um, even if the manipulation involves giving her the right quality of will, right, aligning her will with her second-order desires. And so they conclude that quality of will accounts of synchronic responsibility are themselves mistaken. So this is the objection that I'm going to try and give a response to in light of this distinction that I've drawn between these forms of responsibility. Right, so I think that <clears throat> when you're engaged in this kind of di- um, this dialectic, you have to admit that there is some intuitive pull to say the agents in these kinds of cases are not responsible. But as a quality of will theorist, I think all quality of will theorists are committed to the claim that some manipulations will result in responsible agency. That it's possible to be manipulated and then to be blameworthy for what you do as a result of that manipulation. Indeed, I actually think some compatibilists try and escape this kind of objection by offering um, a historical condition on responsibility. I think that's a mistake. I think ultimately all compatibilists are committed to the claim. I think this is just what the thesis of compatibilism amounts to. Uh, are committed to the claim that there is some possible manipulation that can result in responsible agency. Right, so, then, so now at this point I want you to think, well, what is the source of the not responsible intuition? So I think there's two obvious things to say here, right? The first is that before Beth was manipulated, she was morally innocent. She was a kind and decent person. right? Then the second thing to say is, well, the manipulation was reversed immediately after she committed the murder. I mean, clearly, Mealy is adding that detail in order to pump up the intuition that the agent's not responsible in this kind of case. So, but the thing here is that the question, right, is Beth morally responsible for murdering? This is a question Neely asked. It's ambiguous. It's ambiguous between these three different questions. Is Beth before the manipulation responsible? Is the manipulated Beth responsible? Is she blameworthy for murdering? And is post-manipulation reversal Beth responsible for the murder? So I think the proponents of these kinds of cases, draw attention to features of the the agent before the manipulation and features of the agent after the manipulation, in order to drum up intuitive support for the claim that the agent is not responsible. But I want to say, like, that's illegitimate, because negative answers to A and C are compatible with a positive answer to B, and that's the question at issue between quality of will theorists and their critics. Right? So if, if diachronic responsibility were just a matter of personal identity, and were it the case that personal identity was held fixed across the manipulation, then the fact that Beth was morally innocent before the manipulation and after its reversal, then maybe that would be relevant in assessing her moral status, um, in assessing the moral status of the manipulated agent. Right? But DR, I've argued, is not a matter of personal identity and the conditions of diachronic responsibility are not held fixed across the manipulations. Indeed, the manipulations themselves affect the very conditions of diachronic responsibility because you're tinkering with these psychological elements that lead to the action. So neither agent 1 nor agent 3 will be responsible for the murder because they're not appropriately psychologically connected to the action. So the intuition that the agent is not responsible is undermined to the extent that it's a reaction to the moral qualities of agent one or of agent two. And I think once we notice this, the manipulation objection is stripped of much of its intuitive clout. And so the question at issue is B. I think it's much less clear that um, a negative answer to this question has an intuitive claim over a positive one. OK. And so now I'll just kind of quickly sum up what I've tried to do. So I've argued that synchronic and diachronic responsibility are distinct, They're distinct forms of responsibility, distinct forms of evaluation. There's many accounts of synchronic responsibility on the table. Whether this requires libertarian free will, reasons responsiveness, alignment of one's will and one's second-order volition, or some other kind of condition. But most theorists, I think, implicitly think that diachronic responsibility is a straightforward matter. Of personal identity, but I've argued this is mistaken, it's not a matter of personal identity, instead it's a matter of psychological connectedness, and I've argued that um, we can use this distinction in order to explain away the intuition generated in the manipulation cases. We can explain the not responsible intuition in these cases purely in terms of diachronic responsibility, And as such, these cases do not unproblematically shed light on the conditions of synchronic responsibility. And then finally, I've tried to explain how this distinction bears on the concepts of forgiveness, apology, and punishment. Um, Indeed, I mean, I think this distinction, it's going to be relevant in any area in which responsibility for something that passed is relevant. So I think that has quite broad relevance. Thank you.
0: half
4: an hour for discussion um, yes so. um, I would like to ask you
0: can <clears throat> politicians
4: accept diachronic responsibility I'll explain why about that um, I have to confess I did come here hoping for some advice and enlightenment about a campaign I'm involved in <laughs> which is seeking an apology from the government yeah. uh, for past adoption practices. Yeah. As mm-hmm. some people are aware, um, women uh, tended to be pressured, some would say forced, mm-hmm. to give up their children because they weren't married.
1: Yeah,
4: And um, it's a very difficult campaign. Up yeah. In Australia, it's a lot, lot further than you may have heard of Julia Gillard's apology in mm-hmm. Australia quite recently. Um, our politicians it's fallen on deaf ears pretty well and their argument is this is all in the past, mm-hmm. nothing to do with us, we love your people and anyway, you know, what we would what an apology do that that's another question right. that I maintain it would help a lot. But their argument is it's it's not their responsibility. Right. So I wonder uh, I was a really bit disappointed that you went into science fiction for a few examples, because so, I think there's lots of practical things. I think the there are, yeah.
1: yeah. So, so that's an interesting case, right? So, question of whether, say, a government ought to apologize for some bad act that's occurred in the past. Um, so one thing that's interesting about those kinds of cases, for one thing, is that they involve um, collectives. So it's a question of collective responsibility. Now... I tend to think, uh, and you might, you might not like this, but I tend to think that the conditions of diachronic responsibility that I've tried to kind of elucidate here tonight will apply in the case of collectives as well. So I think whether a collective ought to um, apologize for some past harm is going to turn on whether they're still diachronically responsible for that past harm. And so in the case of collectives, right, so in the case of individuals, We can speak of beliefs, desires, motivations, these sorts of things. And I think we can speak of these sorts of things with respect to collectives as well, right? So governments and corporations, right? Corporations have mission statements. I think they're an expression of the values that the corporation has. We can can question whether they live up to those sorts of values through their actions or not. So with respect to kind of political apology, what I'll say is, um, in a case where it's true that there, there are not the connections of the right sort over time, then that will mean that it would be inappropriate for the current political body to apologize for some past mark. But whether in fact that's actually the case in real life um, cases and real life examples, I think it's an open question. It may be that the kind of um, sexism, um, structural sexism, structural oppression that led to those bad acts in the first place are still present to a great deal in the current administration and current group. And I think that will ground, will ground um, their kind of blame for that past act and why an apology would be being ordered.
4: Thank you. Oh, may I um, just mention that the campaign I'm talking about is called Ma Movement for an Adoption Apology if anybody's interested the
0: website. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, excellent question. Um, yes. yes. I'm just a bit confused about your um, reply your because it seemed like you said the necessary condition for making an apology would be that you haven't changed so that there is some kind of psychological connection, but then the apology would be false.
1: Right, and so yeah, I didn't kind of, did kind of, speak uh, there. Yeah, so. Um, so. I mean, it seems
0: like if you actually change, so, they're under the connection. We still need the apology to actually uh, not being a responsible anymore. It seems like this extra thing, because otherwise you wouldn't need really an apologize.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the, I mean, I think there's issues of vagueness here. And so, when, in the case where the, where the relevant connections are completely severed, then I think the action's no longer attributable to the agent in any sense of the term. And that's why it would be inappropriate at that point to apologize. I think that there are kind of, when it, when, I, mean, it, I think in, in actual cases in which these psychological connections are severed, right, you can imagine that they get very tenuous. Right? There's just a few left over. And then there's a question of should the person apologize or should they not? And I think that we don't have strong... I think it's not clear in the phenomenon itself. And so my theory attempts to um, kind of match that to vagueness that's in the phenomenon.
0: apology is kind of your statement that you're not any longer connected, and if you don't make the apology, then in some sense you would have to assume that you're still connected
1: and that you not Yeah, there might be interesting know. issues there with presumption of whether, what the reasonable presumption is. I mean I think it would be inappropriate to apologize for an act for which you are not diachronically responsible for whatsoever. Right, for example, it would be inappropriate for me to apologize for some act that you did some past, right? Because I'm not I, I'm not connected whatsoever to that kind of action. It's not attributable to me.
0: Yeah, but that's very really interesting. It seem to be related to the, to the first question as well, right? That insofar as the government is not willing to issue the apology, um, can we presume that they're. Right, that
1: might be evidence that they are connected. That they actually
0: are connected. Right? still. So that's what we're hoping to show. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, very
2: interesting. Yeah. How, how do you deal with the, the objection um, that throughout uh, this, this, this um, throughout uh, in presenting your argument, you seem to be objectifying a, a, the entity of, of um, personal responsibility or blameworthiness, and almost to the extent that one could imagine, and, and you're grounding it in psychological connectedness? Uh, and and, uh, one could imagine that in some far advanced future neuroscientists could look inside our brains and and measure the extent to which we were blameworthy for past actions Mm -hmm. by examining the psychological connectedness they could actually quantify Mm -hmm. the the psychological connectedness and describe it and and measure it Uh, so there seems to be an objective uh, this seems to be some sort of objective entity, you know, uh, which is just there. And yet, um, when we blame people, when we have the experience uh, in life of, of blaming someone, uh, it's not because we're observing some new property of that person that they've that they now have since they committed the bad act. Um, we blame them because they've hurt us, and and we're not. In, in blaming them, we're not Implicitly making a statement That they have a new property um, that, you know, that they possess a new property um, as, as persons it, it's, it's simply that we feel Terribly hurt and angry And, and we recognise that someone else May not blame that agent For what they did Even though I do mm-hmm. um, So we're not saying you have to Because can't you see he's blameworthy uh, it, it, it's, it's very much a personal thing it's, it's, it's subjective and, and it, then it, in, it seemed to me you maybe you compounded the problem by saying well a collective can also be blameworthy and yet a collective is made up of many individuals who may not at all share what say it's, say it's a nation or a government right. who may not at all share the values or, or may not have shared in, in and sure, sure. responsibility for whatever act it was that government did. Yeah. They may have, have, have not been personally involved and, and not got along with it.
1: Yeah. So, so, so the stuff about collective responsibility, this is a paper that I'm currently working on, so this is a bit speculative. But here's what I want to say with respect to the issues about collective responsibility. Is that one issue that you can think about in terms of diachronic responsibility is whether a collective now is responsible for a collective action in the past. So, there we're only talking about collectives. We're not distributing that responsibility amongst the members. Now, in terms of the distribution, kind of what grounds the distribution of responsibility from a collective to the individual members. So, one possibility, um, and I'll, I don't know if I fully will, well, I'm not going to argue the point here. I'll just assert it. You can see whether you think it's plausible or whether you think it's implausible, is that the conditions. Um, under which it's appropriate to go from collective responsi- from responsibility of the collective to the individual members will concern the extent to which the members themselves are connected to um, the kind of elements that led to that bad act in the first place. So this will escape the worry that there's going to be members of the collective who kind of get, don't get their fair share and that they get held accountable merely because of their membership. Okay. But then with respect to the kind of objective question about whether I'm assuming that there's kind of objective facts maybe about these sorts of things. I mean, so I I do think that there are objective facts about blame. I mean, one thing about blame, we do blame people when we feel hurt. But we also admit that blame can be appropriate and it can be inappropriate. And so I think when we think about what it is that we're doing when we blame others... I mean in my own case when I blame people, um, or when I blame myself or when I praise people or whatever, I think that I'm representing them to be a certain kind of way. So I think to blame someone is to represent someone to have, say, fallen below certain moral expectations that we accept. You might think that, I mean, you can hold that those kind of are objectively grounded, or you can hold that it's kind of a matter of convention, that it's relative to culture, um, but there's going to be an objective fact whether, in fact, that person failed to meet that expectation or not. And that'll get um, kind of objective to some extent. That will give you facts about blame, about the appropriate conditions for blame. Question um, in the back. I was wondering how might
5: you respond to the suggestion that um, the ideal example of an individual mode. Longer possessing any diachronic responsibility would be an, an individual epitomizing Socrates paradox that no one knowingly
1: does wrong. Um, I mean, first of all, well, it just seems false to me that no one knowingly does wrong. I mean, that's a stretch of, I think, the notion of wrongness and the notion of knowing, I mean, I've done wrong things, and I know that I did them, and I truly did them. I mean, I think that I mean ultimately I think that one of the paradigms of diachronic responsibility dwindling to nothing is when we die. Then we're not diachronically responsible for what we've done in the past because there is no psycho there is no psychology that persists at that later time. That's an interesting point okay. So first I would
5: like to uh to say uh while we stood the uh, uh, understand the value of your lecture. So uh, for this um, um, issue, I think your lecture is you know, of great value because you make your position so clear so you can um, provoke other the, the opposing views and this is probably the, the value of the debate. Uh, so that's the um, you know, uh, Intellectual contribution, I think. Um, in uh, real life, um, if uh, people try to apply your theory of real life to allocate the responsibility, especially in the uh, criminal law area, I think it can be very controversial. So, uh, but that I, I understand that's not your your point or your, your, your uh, purpose to pre- give such a. You know, for me, is a very. Uh, intellectual stimulating brain right. so um, I have a predi- uh, s- uh, this uh, s- uh, specific question in the Beth uh, example you gave uh, you said um, because Beth was um, uh, manipulating to um, acquire the structural uh, st- uh, psychological structure of desires mm-hmm. so uh, he was uh, she was not responsible for the terrible act uh, carried out by this path. Um, it seems in this uh, spe- specific example, you know, the, here the um, responsible, I think this uh, so, path should be responsible.
1: So I, yeah, so, maybe, so maybe I didn't, was not clear up on this point. So I think that when she has the kind of bad motivational set, yeah. that she is responsible. Yeah. But she's after the manipulations reversed, uh-huh. Then she's not going to be responsible, mm-hmm. because the relevant psychological connections have been severed. And so I'm, in that kind of example, I'm trying to explain, I think that in these manipulation cases, there is this intuitive pull to say the agent's not responsible. I'm trying to explain...
5: Here, the responsible, understanding, my understanding of responsible it was this you know, causal link, you know, someone died because of the, path of the so, so I'm actually, I'm actually of thinking it, about blame this responsibility. But responsibility is a legal concept. We still, from the legal concept, path still need to be confined and you know, in institutionalized you know, so that other people won't suffer the, uh, his terrible. But no, if the manipulation is reversed,
1: then she's not uh, going to be disposed to do so this. I
5: just tried to make this point. Yeah. A, I mean, uh, so there's uh, this understand. question of
1: how, what is the relation between legal responsibility yeah. and moral responsibility? I and mean, I tend to think that um, legal responsibility is actually parasitic upon moral responsibility.
5: Um, it must be more practical. Because you it must avoid, be more practical. Avoid, avoid I mean, avoid right. the
1: future you know, uh, crimes. Right, there's and more, there's more uh, considerations that enter into. Legal responsibility than mere moral responsibility. And the real culprit are those, those no, surgeons,
5: right? The what? terrible
1: surgeons. Yeah. Who, when you, so, so they can be blamed, blame blame right? Blame I mean, one, yeah. one, way that people try to respond to these examples is to say, oh well, look, you know, the neurosurgeons, they're the blame right. But there's plenty of blame to go around, I think. Yeah. Um, and so the manipulated person can still be blamed. I mean, right? So this, so it's, so this is an intellectual exercise. I think it has value with respect to kind of exercising critical thinking, and that sort of thing, but I think that, I mean, I believe this stuff, and so I operate my life, and like, whether I'm deciding to blame someone, or to forgive them, or whether I think I ought to be forgiven for something I've done in the past, I mean, I think this, I I think this is a good description of the actual moral phenomenon that we encounter in our lives, and I think that it could inform, um, But I think it actually already does inform legal responsibility to a large extent. I mean, you see people who undergo religious conversions in, say, in prison, and they argue that this is an exempting kind of condition, right? Or we think about, right, so Patty Hearst, um, some of you may know this case, she was um, kind of a a very wealthy socialite, I think, in San Francisco in the 1970s. She was kidnapped by a group of political radicals, and they really brainwashed her. And as a result, she... um, She helped them rob a bank. She was captured on video holding a machine gun, robbing a bank. Uh, And she was convicted of that crime. And I think that's adequately represented in this kind of conceptual picture that I'm offering. She was later pardoned, but that, I think, was explained by the kind of psychological deprogramming that occurred. So, I think that this stuff is represented in both kind of our ordinary moral lives and in the legal.
0: I'm sorry to be jumping in, I see the other questions, but I just wanted to follow up on that question because I'm wondering whether what you say about psychological connectedness doesn't in the end collapse you view into some sort of personal identity you after all. Right. So I mean you say the person is not so I guess your view has perhaps the advantage over the personal identity view that you have you have different degrees right. of connectedness yeah. and different yeah. degrees of responsibility because the personal identity theorists maybe doesn't right but when you say well you know to the extent that Beth at time t2 when she's brainwashed is it like um, not at all psychologically connected to Beth 1 at time 1 she's not you know Beth 1 is not responsible for what Beth 2 does because there's no psychological connection literally between them because she's been brainwashed to such an extent but then I'm wondering how is that different from just saying well she's become a different person due to the
1: brainwashing. So I think that the reason that we think personal identity is relevant in these kinds of cases is because it often implies psychological connectedness. Mm-hmm. I tend to agree with Parfit here that identity itself just doesn't matter okay. at all. What matters is psychological connectedness. Mm-hmm. At least in the kind of normative realm, the realm of anticipation, survival, responsibility. Okay, okay.
4: great. So, yeah. yes. Right. So I... I, I think your argument or the way of looking at it is very interesting and very clear and, and quite useful. And I wondered if you'd also explore, because to some extent when you sit, when you talk about it, it's really intuitive, but, and to sort of simplify it, to, it's basically saying, well, to some extent, if they would do it again now, they're still responsible for what they did before. And I wonder if we would apply, have you explored the praiseworthy side of it? So does the same thing apply? And do we sort of as intuitively think about it? So if now we would say somebody did something a long time ago that they were really praised for, a year later would we feel like we should take away that praise if we don't think they would do it again now?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, praise often can seem to be... I mean, I think psychologically people are much more willing to blame others than they are to praise people. (laughs) So I think that that... might be played into this, that there's some level of asymmetry going on. But I think it would apply to praiseworthiness, at least if you understand praiseworthiness in the right, in a certain kind of way. So if someone is praiseworthy, then this means they exhibit kind of admirable character traits that gives us reasons to interact with them in a certain kind of way. And I think that those kinds of reasons that I think are really what praiseworthiness and blameworthiness is really about, I mean, the, one way to frame this issue is in terms of what kind of reasons we have to interact with this person in certain kinds of ways, and so those reasons will persist so long as the right psychological structure persists through time. Now, of course, it may be right that someone, right, someone um, saves a child drowning in the pond, and we give them a reward and we praise them. Right? I don't think that we should be continually doing this, um, you know, years down the line. But we still have reasons to admire their. Good quality as well.
4: Yeah. I just wondered if you would actually sort of explore the
1: other side of it in your. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's going to apply symmetrically ultimately. You do? Yeah. Okay. Okay. yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, somehow I do not quite agree with. Oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. There, was, there was
0: someone behind you, but yeah, go ahead. and you, oh, go sorry, next uh, next uh, uh, Somehow I I do not quite agree with Puppet's claim because, um, because he
5: seems to argue that it is possible for us to rank it personal identity. From thinking comes the uh, moral responsibility and tries to go back to the psychological practice alone. And, and my, my my question is um, whether it is possible for us to totally break it in, um personal identity such that uh, the psychological practice can be fully
1: <coughs> relevant. I mean, morally relevant. Yeah. For us. Yeah. To, to to judge. That's a that's a really interesting question, right? So the question is is it possible that um, I'm not, say, psychologically continuous with my past self, but in which I do exhibit these relevant psychological connections that ground that iconic responsibility? So I think it is possible, at least if you understand psychological continuity in the way Parfit does, right? So Parfit says that to be psychologically continuous over a period of time involves that you have to have um, at least was it at least half of the relevant psychological connections that hold over the course of the day for the average person? So if that's true, there could be, it could fall below that threshold over a period of time. But the, in which case, there'd be a failure of psychological continuity. Because you have to, in order to make that notion um, binary and non-transitive, you kind of have to draw an arbitrary threshold along the spectrum of psychological connectedness, which is scalar and is not transitive. Um, and so, I think there could be a case in which you fall below the threshold for psychological continuity, but in which, right, there's still the persistence of that kind of volitional mechanism, will ground description of diatonic responsibility. So this would be a case where someone's changed in all respects, except there's still this self-absorbed narcissist. And then they can still be responsible the actions of the self-absorbed narcissists, I think, can still be attributable to
5: them. So I think uh, in this case, uh, the person may has have to take in as kind of a, a secret or a hidden assumption to the psychological connectives, such that we can, uh, we, such we can uh, understand the moral the responsibility, uh, more not not merely psychological. So uh, can you
1: just? both kind a assumption behind well actually, I mean I, I think that we don't need to talk about identity whatsoever I don't think that identity I think we can speak about everything that matters normatively just in terms of psychological connectedness I and mean, we can just throw out all talk of identity how uh, do you think there's a necessary connection between psychological connectedness and psychological is there necessarily necessarily have to be some psychological continuity to have some psychological connections. Say in the Beth example, if uh, the psychologist had implanted the exact conditions and desires of a criminal who in the past is now dead in the past and at something. And those conditions and desires are what led her to kill Bethany. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you think in that moment you were justified to punish Beth being be responsible for the criminal's previous crimes? We, um, can, you, can you tell me that case? <laughs> yes. In a broad sense, could we implant a psychological connectedness to a previous criminal, to say him, and punish him, this personality in a new body, retrospectively, for his crime to Yeah, so my short answer is yes. I mean, this would be a weird, this is going to be a weird case, but I mean, what <laughs> would essentially involve, I think, is um, bringing back Hitler in relevant respects. Which would be bad. But yeah, I mean, I think that the person would be punished. I mean, if you think about what we care about when we're thinking about responsibility, and we're trying to navigate the interpersonal landscape, I think that you'll still have everything that matters there, right? You have someone with really crummy motivations, who really takes joy in causing pain to other people, that's going to give me reason to steer clear from them. It's going to give me reason to censure them in certain kinds of ways. It's going to give me reason to um, kind of take a certain kind of normative stance towards them. I think that these are the things that I'm not blame. Okay,
0: good. Thank you. were next. Thank
1: you.
2: Yeah, um, yeah I, I'm not convinced that what you're presenting is two different kinds of moral responsibility. Is it actually the difference of leisure trading? the difference between moral responsibility and what might be called punishment worthiness. Okay, good point. Uh, And moral responsibility is a precondition and a consideration in assigning punishment worthiness,
1: but they're not the same thing. And the punishment worthiness isn't a form of moral responsibility. Do you follow that? I do follow. So, right, so some people have put this kind of objection towards me in which they say something along the lines of, look, when, um, so you can take the Jane case in Scenario A, where she undergoes a program of self-improvement, um, though the action is... Um, right, so the action... She's responsible for the action. Still, at that later time, it would just be less appropriate to overtly go through overt-blaming kind of two, behaviors. Two
2: people do equally wrong acts, identically all respects, but one is sorry, repentant, and no one is...
1: Right, so you want to describe that case as a case in which... It's true. she's yeah, still responsible. Yeah, yeah. She's, yeah. It would just be inappropriate to kind of punish her. So the Yeah. So, so a couple points here. So one point is that there's some danger here that this is just um, terminological issue that you're using punishment worthy in the same way I'm using diachronically responsible. But to the extent that there is a substantive difference there, I mean, here's what i here's what I'll say to try and convince you. We can imagine cases of extreme psychological. Disconnectedness. So, so I guess there's these people undergo fugue states or dissociative fugue states in which uh, it's characterized by really strong forms of amnesia, sometimes temporary, but essentially someone will right go to sleep one day and then they'll wake up and they'll be essentially they'll have a different cla- different personality. They won't remember anything previously, different personalities, traits, different kind of values, different things like this. And so, when I consider cases like that, and you can consider really extreme cases where um, someone starts, say, as a psychological twin of Gandhi, say, here I'm going to use a kind of sci fi example again. And then there are overlapping psychological connections over time, say, 30, 40, 100 years later, whatever. But then the person you end up with is, say, a psychological twin of Hitler. So this is conceptually possible. And the reason it's conceptually possible is because psychological continuity does not require the preservation of psychological content of any kind. So here you have a case, and I think that this would be physically possible also. So here you have a case where you have these two people who just seem completely different, but still are kind of continuous. They could be biologically continuous, they could be psychologically and in a case where they don't share any of the same psychological elements whatsoever, then I think it just seems much more intuitive to say, look, the past action is just not attributable to them at all. They didn't do it at all. It's not a question of punishment worthiness. It's not attributable to them in the first place. They're never, they're not responsible. What's strong
2: claim you're making?
1: different, sure. Yeah, I mean, so, so I have to draw out the case. I think it's the best explanation. you don't
0: have to go to such extreme examples. So, I mean, we, I mean, you, you wouldn't normally think that you're responsible for what you did
1: as a child, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, one issue that I might be going on there is that we're not a moral agent. You're not. Uh, yeah, no, okay, you are not It's moral agency that. as well. Yeah. Yeah. the same thing with yeah, yeah, yeah. the government. Yeah. Uh, you know, And you've
2: got a distinction between yeah. a corporate body and a collective body. The mm. there are differences there. The corporate an body interesting. continues to a yeah. personnel uh, change. Yeah. yeah. Okay,
0: good. Um...
3: So I have a question about the, the replicating Hitler example.
5: Sure. because That
1: seems like a pretty counterintuitive thing, uh, and I was wondering whether, because I think when you talked about psychological connectedness, you said sort of the dispositions have to be identical, but also they have to be caused. Yeah. So there has to be. So the example would so have to so involve a certain kind So I was of wondering condition.
2: whether in that Hitler case, it wouldn't be sort of more convenient for your position to say, well,
0: there might be the same in terms of identity, but they were caused in the wrong way.
1: Yeah, yeah, so so that's true, it depends how you set up the example. So, right, I take it the point was that there is there is some possible example where they do get the kind of causal machinery, right? And then I will be committed to this, perhaps counterintuitive claim that. Um, I mean, but There will always be somebody intervening and doing, so sort of, to sort of speak, the uploading, right? I mean, that, that yeah, causality I mean, different, obviously. Yeah, this will depend on what causal relations you think are required. Perfect. thinks, and I'm sympathetic to this, that it's causes of any kind, so long as there is a causal relation between the first kind of psychological state, as long as that thing causes, in some kind of way, the latter psychological state, and there's a similarity relation, then we can say that these two states are psychologically connected. Do you, do you believe that because of the other things you said later on about the compatibilism? Um, I mean, I think, I think this is true in light of Various um, kind of cases that Parfit talks about, like the tele teleport, mm-hmm. teleport- yes. teleporting cases. Okay, good. Last question. And was just kind of a quick one. Um, is it always diminishing responsibility? Good. Really excellent point. So, <laughs> right. So, I mean, I've actually gone back and forth on this question. So the question is, at best. Can diachronic responsibility be equal to synchronic responsibility? And is is the only possible valence going down? Can there only be a diminishment? Or can there be an enhancement kind of case? And so in the paper, I actually, I mean, I still go back and forth on this, but in the paper, I actually commit to, well, the idea that um, enhancement cases are possible. And here's kind of a case to illustrate this. So suppose Jane insults her brother at time t1, and suppose the insult is half hearted, right? She felt bad about it, but she also got kind of excitement and joy for giving the insult, but I mean, it was half-hearted, right? So compare a case in which the insult remains half-hearted and consider it to a case in which, as time goes by, she more closely identifies with the kind of motivations that led to the insult, and at this later time, she wholeheartedly endorses her half-hearted insult. And so, I mean, when you think about cases like this, this is just an intuition that, well, yeah, she's more blameworthy for the insult in that second case than she is in that first case, in light of these kind of psychological connections. So I mean, I'm, I'm certainly open to the idea that diachronic responsibility could be enhanced over time as well. Okay, great. So I think we at the end of our time. I think
0: you've given us lots to think about. So thank you very much, and thank you for your excellent questions.